welcome to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you connect your Catholic faith and the important role of politics and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me here in studio is my co-host of the Bridge Builder Podcast, Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Policy and Outreach Coordinator. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Jason. Glad to be here. Looking forward to our episode. A big thank you, first of all, to Relevant Radio, 1330 AM, for allowing us to use their recording studio. And the sponsor for today's podcast, uh, the State Council of the the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus, are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we focus on Pope John Paul's encyclical Veritatis Splendor, which celebrated its 25th anniversary just last month. And we'll, to help us unpack Veritatis Splendor, we're speaking with Dr. Sam Gregg, Research Director at the Acton Institute, who's an expert on moral philosophy and the natural law and its intersection with uh, economics. Today in our classic Catholic social teaching, we will actually unpack that very same encyclical, and Rachel and I will go deeper and bring up personal, uh, what it, how it's impacted us on a personal level. So looking forward to that conversation. And finally, in our Brick by Brick segment, Rachel will uh, continue to offer practical tips and hints for bringing your faith into the public arena, especially in an important election season. Yeah, so you're going to want to stay tuned for the end of our segment today, our podcast today. We're going to do that brick by brick builder segment, and we have a really specific kind of different way to get involved, a really practical way to get involved by actually making your voice heard in the public arena, your voice heard in your community in a really interesting way. So looking forward to talking about that. Finally, we finish out with a bit of sacred music, not performed by Rachel and me, but by the incredible voices from choirs around Minnesota. So let's get into it, Rachel. Yeah, I'm excited. So joining us on the line to talk about Veritatis Splendor is Dr. Sam Gregg. Dr. Gregg is Director of Research at the Acton Institute. He has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, economic history, ethics and finance, and natural law theory. He has a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Oxford. And uh, Dr. Gregg is a good friend and an old friend. Welcome, Dr. Gregg, to the Bridge Builder podcast. Jason and Rachel, thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you. So uh, this is an encyclical that seems to be more in the news, despite the fact that it was written 25 years ago, and uh, you wrote a very outstanding piece on it in Catholic World Report. Uh, why did Help us understand, why did Pope John Paul write the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, or in the English, The Splendor of Truth? Well, he wrote the encyclical for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, there were problems within the teaching and understanding of moral theology within the Catholic world, which had really taken off after Humanae Vitae was issued in 1968. And the best way I can describe the type of problem that was the encyclical was partly trying to address was it was basically the emergence of essentially a type of utilitarian way of thinking about morality that used Catholic language and Catholic uh, concepts, but really was at very far removed from the classic Catholic way of thinking about moral questions, and which also was very far removed from natural law theory. I mean, the way it was the, the, the description that was given to these, these frankly, errors was were called pro- proportionalism and consequentialism. And really, when they came down to it, when you looked at them very carefully, they were basically forms of utilitarianism, 
whereby you try and make moral decisions based upon assessments of the effects of your actions or upon assessments of what you think are going to be the goods and evils associated with any one particular act. The problem with both of those theories was that they ran square into a problem that Catholic social teaching has, or uh, Catholic moral teaching has always talked about, which is you may not do evil that good may come with it, that there are moral absolutes that we may never violate at any point. And both of those theories implied at least, and in some cases suggested, that you could do moral evil in order that good may come with it. So that was one reason, a problem within the Church. A second problem, I think, however, that the encyclical was trying to address was these spread of relativism, moral relativism, not just within the Church, but outside the Church as well. And Veritatis Splendor was basically saying, no, there are moral absolutes, we can know them through reason and faith, and they make sense of the moral life, they give coherence to the moral life. The third thing I think the encyclical was trying to do was basically present an alternative understanding of freedom, and trying to show that the moral life, the good life, is not a set about a, a, obeying a set of rules, though the rules are important. It's much more about living out your freedom in ways that allow you to flourish as human beings are supposed to flourish. So we're talking about virtues, we're talking about living the good. So all those things, I think, came together very nicely in this particular encyclical to deal with a problem that had emerged within Catholic moral theology, but also a positive way of thinking about the moral life, and also an attempt to recover and, and re-articulate a proper understanding of freedom that was not at all associated with relativism. Now, interestingly, these things, from one perspective, seem just uh, true on their face, right? But yet you describe the encyclical as one of Pope John Paul II's most controversial why is that? Well, for, because in the, the, the two, two of the, pro- the issues I just mentioned, the, the problem of, let's call it, I, I like to call it Catholic utilitarianism, although it goes under names of proportionalism, consequentialism, had become very, very widespread among uh, at least two generations of Catholic clergy. So essentially Veritatis Splendor was saying to quite a few Catholic clergy and quite a few Catholic theologians, that what you've been taught for the past 20 years in many seminaries, uh, in many colleges and universities, is not in accordance with how the Catholic Church understands the moral life. So if you're a theologian who's been pr- pushing consequentialism and proportionalism for a long time, you're not going to take it very lo- easily when, some, when the Pope says, no, actually these don't accord with the Catholic way of thinking. A second reason it was controversial was that by talking about moral absolutes, it went straight against this trend towards relativism in thinking about moral questions, which had emerged not just in the Catholic world, but which was running riot in, in what you might call the rest of the world. So when a document comes along saying, no, there are moral absolutes, there are things we may never do, that was, and we can know the truth, and we can live our freedoms in ways that reflect the truth, that went against probably most secular ways of thinking about the moral life that were then dominant, and which I would argue are probably still dominant today. So those two things, I think, made it controversial, because when you say those things today, that's viewed as being problematic. If you say, no, there is moral truth, 
then, of course, people say, well, how can you possibly know moral truth? Or if you say not everything is relative, then you run into that sort of the problem of that soft relativism that we hear every day. When we hear people say things like, well, there's your opinion and my opinion, but there's no real truth. Or when people say things like, um, well, we can't make judgments about anything. Well, Veritatis Splendor said, no, we can make concrete judgments about people's moral actions. We can make judgments about what's right and wrong, and that there are moral truths about moral questions that transcend cultural differences, cultural, political, and social differences. And when you live in a world, as we do today, where everyone's talking about your truth, my truth, and there's very few people are willing to talk about the truth, Veritatis Splendor was bound to make waves. Dr. Gregg, so when, when we're talking about some of these ideas, and I think you're right on when you say that we're still experiencing some of this today, you know, some of this confusion that's brought on by utilitarianism utilitarianism, or we still want to move away from moral absolutes, not only in the secular culture, but sometimes um, in the church, I think we are moving, it's a moving away of the discussion of really the nature of the acts themselves versus the consequences or what might come of it. So for the for the listeners in the pews who maybe might be experiencing some of this confusion surrounding moral absolutes themselves, can you just respond and say to them, what what does it mean to say something is intrinsically evil? What does it mean to say an act itself is intrinsically evil, despite the consequences, despite the other things? What it basically means is that the act is always and everywhere wrong. It's never the case that there's a good act of murder. It's never the case that there's it's good to lie. It's never the case that it's good to commit adultery. In other words, <clears throat> these actions in themselves are so destructive of the goods that lie at the heart of human identity that they can't possibly be reconciled with living a good life. There's no such thing as a good act of adultery. There's no such thing as a good lie. There's no such thing as a good murder. These things are always and everywhere wrong. And so that's, it's really, if you look at the, the second tablet of the Decalogue, the second tab tablet of the Decalogue, the thou shalt not. So if you look at those very carefully, they're all saying these are things you may never do. But if you look at them also very carefully, what you realize is that each of those those thou shalt nots are protecting a particular good, a particular moral good. So don't kill means don't destroy life. You have to protect the good of life. Don't lie is about protecting the good of truth. Um, uh, don't steal is about having respect for people's possessions and the concept of property. So these, these moral absolutes these things that say we may never do certain things, they're about these acts that may never be done because they inevitably and always result in some type of damage to these goods that are at the root of human flourishing. And what's I think important to remember here is that it's not as if that 
abstaining from intrinsically evil acts as somehow the be-all and end-all of the moral life. No, they are basically like what John Paul called in the encyclical a basic minimum. So there's, 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 no, there's no limit to how well we can live the moral life, but there is a minimal requirement. And that's one of the things that Veritatis Splendor was trying to remind people of, that there's a, basically a, there's a, there's a, there's a standard that, that you have to abide by if you're seriously interested in living the moral life. So there's a minimum that one has to do. Now, that's not enough. There's certainly not enough for salvation. That's not enough for, for, for living a flourishing life or living in a flourishing society. But you can't do without these things if you want to live a morally flourishing life, if you want to live in a morally flourishing society. So intrinsically evil really means what it says, that this, is, this act by its very nature cannot be reconciled in any circumstances, in any situation, with living a good and moral life. And interestingly, in the encyclical, Pope John Paul II connects the discussion of moral absolutes and intrinsically evil acts with martyrdom. And yes. really that martyrdom doesn't make sense outside of a, a worldview in which you accept that there are moral absolutes and intrinsically evil acts. So, Dr. Greg, can you elaborate on what he's saying there and, and how those two are connected? I mean, often it seems like it's a martyrdom to stand up for uh, morally uh, upright acts in the public square, um, and one can suffer a kind of white martyrdom for doing so. So what is how does Pope John Paul connect martyrdom with uh, moral absolutes? Well, he points out that um, many martyrs have died precisely because they have refused to do evil. Uh, and in the article I wrote in Catholic World Report, I, I highlighted a number of cases. For example, why, was Tom, why did Thomas More go to his death? Well, I think it's pretty clear. He went to his death because he refused to say an untruth. He would not swear to something he believed to be untrue. To save his life, all he had to do was say, I recognize the king's marriage uh, to, uh, to Catherine of Aragon wasn't valid, and I recognize that the king is now the head of the church in England. But that would have been a lie. So he refused to do it, and because of his refusal to violate the commandment against lying, that's essentially what uh, he was, uh, uh, that's what essentially in many respects he gave up his life for. Um, or if you think of the Ugandan martyrs who were martyred because they refused to submit to the king's sexual demands. So they basically refused to violate the church's norms about sexuality, and it cost them their lives. They could have just given in if they'd wanted to, and they would have continued to live. They would not have been executed. But they refuse to do so. So these are so. In other words, without the moral absolutes that Veritatis Splendor talks about, those acts of martyrdom make no sense at all. So it shows that sometimes living the moral life requires enormous, makes enormous demands upon us, especially when it comes to not doing evil. Uh, it's always easier 
just to give in. So the point is that many people say, well, the Christian life, the Christian moral life is just an idea. It's something we can aspire to, but, but really no one's really capable of entering into it. No one's really capable of living it out. It's basically just a sort of abstract ideal, and being an ideal, we shouldn't think that too many people are capable of living up to it. And John Paul II is very clear. He says in the encyclical, it is Christian moral life is not a mere ideal. It's something that we can all live up to. At great cost, there's no question of that, there's often a great cost at trying to live the Christian moral life, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. And the martyrs show us that it's not impossible. Hmm. You know, he talks about, and you're talking about now the, the demands on the moral life and the vision for, you know, how a Christian is to live. And Pope John Paul, he frames up this encyclical with the story of the rich young man, you know, coming to him yeah. and asking him, teacher, how how do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? Can you speak about this particular decision to talk about this passage um, in the encyclical? And what's what's the importance of that? Well, I think the first point was that by starting with Scripture, the Pope was underlining the fact that this is not about philosophy in the first place. He goes back to the person of Christ, he goes back to the Master, to the teacher, as the rich young man describes him, and focuses centrally upon how Christ understands living out the moral commands. And what does he say? He says to the rich young man, he says, do you keep the commandments? And he specifies the negative commandments first. This is important because what Christ is doing is saying, this is the bare minimum that everyone is expected to embrace if they want to love and follow me. And the rich young man says, yes, I keep all the commandments, etc., etc. And then Christ says, well, now if you want to go the next step and live a, even to live out, to go beyond just the bare minimum, these are the things that you need to do. So it's a very scriptural way of introducing the way that Christ and his church thinks about the nature of the moral life. So rather than beginning with philosophy, with beginning with, say, natural law theory, he begins with the words of Christ himself in Revelation. And then, you know, later on in the text, this is more fleshed out when it comes to philosophy and natural law thinking. But I think the scriptural thing is very important because it shows that this is not an alien philosophical system that's been imposed upon Christianity from the outside, which is what some people had been arguing basically roundabout from the mid-1950s onwards, up until about Veritatis Splendor's promulgation. Some people were saying, well, there's nothing specifically Christian about uh, this morality. It's basically a reflection of what's going on at the time, so therefore it's culturally relative, etc., etc. And by starting with the scriptural narrative of the rich young man, John Paul basically blows that away and says, no, what we're talking about is the master himself, God, reinforcing the commandments given to the Jewish people, and then showing that it's not just that you have to not, not do evil, that you have to do good, that you should aspire to living out this full life, and that the moral life is not a question of burdens. It's not a question of doing the minimum. 
Doing the minimum is important, but the minimum is the stepping stone to doing other things. And the, and the narrative of the rich young man, of Christ's nar- uh, encounter with the rich young man, spells out how that happens on the basis of Scripture. So I think these are some of the reasons why he started with this rather than starting with a philosophical discussion about the nature of law or the nature of free choice or the nature of human action, all of which is in the encyclical, but is articulated against the background of this very important scriptural rendition of Christ's understanding of the nature and importance of moral life and how it fits into the overall vision of the Christian faith. Right. And you mentioned earlier, one of the main reasons that John Paul II, along with the two others, wrote this was to really combat that idea that this was just a burdensome set of rules, that the moral life was just a burdensome set of rules. And you mentioned that um, the encyclical really offers a compelling vision of freedom and the moral life. So really, what's the connection between these two? And it seems that so many put in opposition the concept of ethics and freedom together. And so what's that connection between freedom and ethics and freedom in the moral life? Well, I think it's important to remember here that before uh, Vatican II, a lot of Catholic moral theology had become legalistic. Mm -hmm. By that I mean it had become a question of, these are the rules and just follow them. Don't ask too many questions about the content of the rules, don't ask too many questions about uh, what this all means, uh, how this relates to questions of human flourishing. No, just do what you're told and everything will be okay. And Veritatis Splendors, to that extent, is also a corrective of some of the less than, ad- not just the errors that I mentioned before, but some of the less than adequate Catholic moral theology that was being done before the Council and after the Council. And so what it does, what Veritatis Splendor does, is connect the rules, or what you, what you might call the principles of the Christian moral life, and show how they give content and form to freedom. So freedom is no longer about, let's just do whatever the hey we want, because that's what the essence of freedom is about, right? No, freedom is now about conquering yourself, conquering your passions, conquering your instincts to do wrong, and focusing your free choices upon choosing the good in every instance where you have to choose between good and evil. And that true freedom is found when we conquer ourselves and we shape ourselves through our choices so we can become more and more Christ-like in the way that we look and act in the world. And so I think that's why there's a great deal of discussion about the nature of the virtues, because the virtues, in a way, are a manifestation of this. It's a manifestation of when we become free, we become more virtuous. When we become more riddled with vices. When we do more evil, we don't become free at all. We actually become slaves, slaves to our passions, slaves to our instincts. So this is a very different way of thinking about morality and the good life. It's certainly different to what was being proposed by proportionalists and consequentialists after the council. council. It's certainly different to the sort of legalism that prevailed before the council, but it's actually a way of thinking about the relationship between freedom and ethics that's much more faithful to the way that Christ thinks about the, thought about and uh, taught about these things and the way that great saints like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, the way they thought about the role of morality when it came to living the Christian life.
Dr. Greg, I think you've made it clear why um, some of the what John, what Pope John Paul II is saying in the encyclical would would face criticism or opposition uh, in the outside culture, in the non-Catholic world, precisely because it's of its criticism of uh, certain prevailing ethical ideas and teachings. But yet, the encyclical also receives some very positive uh, reactions and responses from outside the Catholic world. Is there one or two of those that you th- would just mention to show the evangelical power of what Pope John Paul is saying here? Well, there's, there's quite a few. What was interesting when the encyclical came out was that, first of all, it got enormous public attention. Encyclicals generally don't get a lot of attention outside the Catholic world, let alone inside the Catholic world sometimes. But there were lots of people outside who weren't, who weren't even Christians who recognized that this encyclical was saying some very important things. I can recall when the encyclical came out, I was barely in my 20s, and I remember very well a Jewish friend saying to me, this document is very important. This document is very important because it gives the alternative to the relativism, to the moral subjectivism, to the moral sentimentalism that's running riot in the secular world, but also among a fair number of religious communities as well. And he, also, he pointed out that, he, he, he said, look, this, this document, he said, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not even a Christian, but this document nails the importance of the Decalogue, and particularly the second tablet of the Decalogue, in highlighting the moral absolutes that you must have if any society is going to be civilized. Because once you say, look, not all forms of murder are bad, or not all forms of stealing are so bad, maybe sometimes it's justified, then the very core of these goods, these goods of life, these goods of marriage, these goods of truth-telling, these goods of respecting the other people's property, once you start to compromise those things, everything else goes very, very quickly. And we can see this today. We can look around the world today, and you can see that when you compromise on these moral absolutes, things start to fall apart very, very quickly. So, you know, you compromise on, on contraception, well, it's not long before you start compromising about life at other levels, whether it's at the beginning or at the end of life. Because once you say, look, it's okay to violate the good of life in these circumstances, then many people will say, well, what about these other circumstances? How are these different from what you've just proposed? So I think even though there are obviously many people who who as who liked the encyclical, who weren't Catholic and didn't necessarily agree with everything that was said in it, they recognized that this was one of the very few texts at the time, and even today, that makes the case that there are moral absolutes, and if you compromise on these things, you start heading down the path of barbarism pretty quickly. And that's something that should be, that is obviously of concern not just to Catholics, but to many non-Catholics as well. Amen. Dr. Greg, uh, thank you for joining us today. You've shown why you are a very important resource uh, for the Church today in thinking about really difficult ethical and moral questions, particularly in the realm of economics. And on that note, I'd encourage listeners to check out Dr. Greg's books, particularly his award-winning The Commercial Society and Economic Thinking for the Theologically Minded, as well as his work at the Acton Institute. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Samuel Gregg. Dr. Gregg, thanks again for being with us today. Jason, thanks for having me on. Rachel, great to be with you as well. God bless, and we'll be back in a moment. 
the cyclical Veritatis Splendor is a really important one and worth uh, not only having uh, covering in our interview portion of the Bridge Builder podcast, but also taking it a little bit further uh, in our classic Catholic social teaching segment. I'm sitting here, Rachel, with my dog-eared, well-marked-up copy of Veritatis Splendor that I received as a college sophomore in the fall of 1997. And I can honestly say that reading this encyclical changed my life. Yeah. Um, really uh, made Christianity intelligible for me, uh, not simply as a sort of sentimental or subjective relationship or a set of uh, pious aphorisms or um, humanitarian ideas, but really uh, a way of life, a map of life. And what Pope John Paul II puts in this or draws out of this encyclical is a map of life, an invitation to something greater, an invitation to conform my life to a way in which God is glorified and provides the framework in which I can live the great vocation of Christian living, explore who I am and who God has meant to be, and I've been given the blueprint for doing it. We also read this in concert with uh, Frank Sheed's A Map of Life and the Two Together. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say really just changed the course of my whole life, so I'm profoundly grateful for this encyclical. Yeah, it really lives up to its name, doesn't it? It's in... Its English name, as we mentioned, the splendor of truth. And really just that word splendor, when you read it and when you start to step into the path of the Christian life, the path that Jesus calls us to, the heavenly vision, really, the heavenly reality for who we are, there, there's splendor in that. You know, it's glorious because we're made for glory and we have the glory of God imprinted on our human hearts, right? And so I, it, it's just really beautiful. It's beautiful to hear about your experience. And it, uh, going back to that point I made earlier about the invitation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's that longing that's in our hearts. It's an invitation to the kingdom. It's an invitation to eternal life. And first of all, how do we get people even asking that question right. today? Right. The, the church in, in many people's minds seems more and more irrelevant mm -hmm. uh, to their daily existence. Yet what's being, what we're invited to is a great feast, a great mm -hmm. banquet, and this great adventure. Right. Um, and again, as Dr. Greg was pointing out earlier, that living in accordance with the truth, not violating objective moral norms or moral absolutes and mm -hmm. not committing acts that are intrinsic evil is the baseline, right? That's right. what we have to say no to so that we can say yes to this great adventure. That's the minimum daily requirement, one might say. But when mm -hmm. we do that, we're able to see with the light of Christ and we're able to see with the eyes of faith and not be deceived Mm -hmm. by the evil one. And that's what the evil one tries to do is just tries to destroy our lives, put us off on wrong paths, give us a false map with faulty directions. And so that's really the great relevance of what John Paul is saying is really explicating the perennial teachings of the church and providing us that light of faith so that we can see the authentic map of life mm -hmm. that our Lord has given us. Right. And there's some, because it's so intrinsic to who we are, there's something that awakens in us and something that acknowledge acknowledges this as true when we really let our human spirit and let our hearts and our minds acknowledge that there really is a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. And in our culture and even sometimes within the walls of our churches, we don't want to say that. You know, we don't want to say that whether it's for ourselves that we're, you know, living a right way or a wrong way by doing these 
um, moral evils or for others, that's something that I think we've been afraid to say and afraid to live. And that's why there's been less awakening. I know even in my own life, I was personally convicted and just bulldozed in the best way possible by rereading this encyclical in light of prayer. And I mean, it just struck me so early on in, in the context of the rich young man that we talked about earlier, just I think a quote to just consider a question, a set of questions from St. John Paul II. He says, do the commandments of God, which are written on the human heart and are a part of the covenant, really have the capacity to clarify the daily decisions of individuals and entire society? Is it possible to obey God and thus love God and neighbor without respecting these commandments in all circumstances? And I think intellectually we would say, of course we agree with that, you know, but in the way that I live my life and the way that I go about my life, I think this is essential for Catholics in the church. Are we living like the commandments of God imprinted on our hearts actually carry the weight that they do? Because like uh, Dr. Greg said, these are the words of the master. These are the words of Jesus. And so then I think that that brings in obedience as a as a really important concept and as a really important question here as well. And the idea of keeping the commandments as, you know, that that basic framework, that Mm -hmm. minimum. Right. And then that call to perfection, not Mm -hmm. in the sense that we're expected to be perfect all the time, but. You know, oftentimes people say, well, I'm a good person. Right. I keep the commandments. But mm-hmm. if I want to be perfect, if I want to live holiness, right. then I've got to sell all my possessions and follow him and abandon myself completely to right. him. And that is something that convicts me pretty much every day. And yeah, I absolutely. find great inspiration in and, mm-hmm. and keeps me from getting distracted with all sorts of things. Right. And I mean, I don't know about you or our listeners, but I don't want to, I don't want to go away sad like the rich young man, you know? And I think the key that, John Paul II proposes that I think is in such opposition um, to our culture and to this, the secular framework is that really these commandments actually are a key to a promise, right? They're the key to the promise of God. And there's actually just, just saying, oh, well, Jesus will, I love Jesus. And so I'm trying, you know, it's obviously Jesus looks on us with mercy and that's not to say that he's not equally merciful as he is just, but to, to not pay attention to these acts and to not pay attention to one, the bare minimum, and then the further degree in progressing in holiness and virtue is not helpful for people. It's not helpful for me in my own life. It's not merciful for me in my own life because then I'm avoiding the responsibilities and the call that I have to actually inherit the very kingdom of heaven, to inherit the kingdom of God at the end of my life. That's right. And uh, really uh, uh way in which Pope John Paul is calling us to something higher and deeper and that con- a constructive way of living that freedom that we've been blessed with and which is consistent with our dignity. So really a beautiful encyclical, even if you don't read the full encyclical, the first, at least in my edition, first 40 pages or so um, that really set up the narrative of what the rest of the encyclical discusses um, worth reading on their own. So again, mm-hmm. 25th anniversary of Veritatis Splendor, the splendor of truth. Truth is truly splendid, and we are grateful St. John Paul II for giving us this important teaching that guides the church still today. Brick by brick, that is how bridges are built. And 
we can't uh, do everything, but we can all do something. Sometimes that means just putting one brick in the wall or one brick in the foundation, one might say, of the bridge. Um, again, people are mystified when it comes to politics, their participation. Uh, how can I make my voice heard? How can I make a difference? We endeavor in this brick by brick segment to help you do that. And Rachel has got a really important way, a really easy, surprisingly easy way to make your voice heard on important issues affecting life and dignity. Yeah, so if you've been listening to our past podcasts, we've been talking about legislators and ways to get involved with our legislators and build those relationships. And so today we have a way that you can actually make your voice heard in your community and make your voice heard as a Catholic. And so as Jason said, it's really straightforward. Um, and that's just writing letters to the editor of your local newspaper. And those can be printed. It's on different issues that are happening in your community that maybe are happening on a broader scale, things that you're passionate about. doesn't have to be an academic article. You know, it could be it's straightforward. What do you think about this? How is this affecting you? 150 words. Send it in. And it can be printed in your local paper. It's a really simple, straightforward way to make your voice heard on issues that you care about. A lot of social media platforms are great for emoting and emojis, mm. <laughs> um, but you can still say something substantive on uh, through the newspaper, through creation of a blog. And I think I'd really encourage people to focus on local issues where they have firsthand knowledge. We mm -hmm. often get caught up in national politics, but often where we know the impact of real concrete problems and the right solutions is in our own backyard mm -hmm. and not enough attention gets paid to those things. And so I really encourage letters to the editor, uh, blogs, even uh, really focusing on local issues. Mm -hmm. That's where there's a real value and a real need, right. whether it's your neighborhood newspaper. And there are still lots of neighborhood newspaper. The Como Park Bugle is mine. Mm -hmm. The Highland Villager is one the, in St. Paul's Highland Park, for example. We don't have to worry about uh, the Pioneer Press or the Duluth News Tribune. Those are important too, but it's easy. 150 mm -hmm. words. Your papers are really papers are really good about giving you directions as to where to send it. And right. you know we can't do everything, but we can all do something. Right. And in our last few podcasts, we've talked about being a resource to your legislators and a resource in the community. And so this is a way on local issues. You, a person who lives, shops, works, you know, in your community, you know what's going on, you know what's happening on the ground. This is a great practical way to be a resource, not only to your legislator, but to other members of your community as well. And just a reminder, in our election season, you can always go to our webpage, mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org uh, for election year resources as well. And um, those are right pop up right on the front page. It's been a blessing to be with you today. Catch the next episode of our podcast on SoundCloud. Join us on Facebook at MN Catholic, on Twitter at MN Catholic Conf, C-O-N-F, and check out our YouTube channel. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM and our sponsor for this podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. What better way to end our podcast of great conversations than with great sacred music? Here is the Gregorian chant Scola of St. John's Abbey performing Quia Ergo Femina, for As a Woman, written by St. Hildegard, an abbess, composer, mystic, pharmacist, theologian, and it appears much more in the 12th century. We celebrate her feast day on September 17th. Quia Ergo Femina. <laughs>